Was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki the closing curtain of World War II or the opening act of the Cold War? Probably the opening act of the Cold War. It was also the end of the American Republic. Every single important military commander on the American side uh, pleaded with the new president, our great Augustus Franklin Roosevelt had died in, I think it was April of 45, and was succeeded by a no-brainer called Harry Truman, who didn't know what he was doing. But he had learned certain notes about, he'd been vice president for a few weeks only, Roosevelt had never told him about the atomic bombs, so he arrives as, as president. And uh, the advisors, all the people connected with the bombs, wanted to drop them, show that they'd spent their money well. Truman thought it was a good idea because he thought that we needed an enemy. We'd had Hitler and Nazism, Stalin and communism, even better. And while he was at Potsdam with his first meeting with Stalin, he gets news from Alamogordo, New Mexico, that the atom bomb works. And he's overexcited because he's going to give it to Stalin because he was a good American who had never really read a book except some very simple children's stories about American history. So he thought, looking at Stalin, here's the enemy just made for us. We could militarize the economy. We can increase the army. Then word comes. The bomb works. There's Leslie Groves, who was a student at West Point of my father. And Groves, a very pompous fellow and um, quite full of himself. It's Oppenheimer, who should have been filled with himself, because Oppenheimer really gave us the bomb with great misgivings. When the explosion went off in the New Mexican desert, he was almost in tears. This is Dr. Oppenheimer. And he said, Lo, behold, I am Shiva, the destroyer of worlds. Then the decision was made, a very good book by a man called Gil Alperovitz, on the decision to use the bomb. At least Truman had the good sense to, to consult his military camp commanders. Every last one of them, including the mad Curtis LeMay and Dr. Strangelove, General Strangelove, said, don't do it. Eisenhower in Europe, the commanding general there, Nimitz, the commanding admiral in the Pacific, they said, don't you do it. We'll be hated by the whole world. Japan is defeated. Everybody knows it. The emperor has been writing Truman letters asking for surrender. Truman, who didn't really understand, much like the current president, he didn't know anything about foreign affairs, but he knew he had two weapons, he had two aces in the hole, or however they say it, poker, and he's going to play them. And he played them, and the cost to our reputation, I mean, the meditations of Eisenhower on how horrible this would be for the United States, I think he suspected he'd already be an American president by then, and there was going to be nothing but trouble. There's been nothing but trouble for us ever since. Truman went on with this grotesque uh, uh, adventure, and we have gone on in the wake of it, and the Cold War begins.
one of the principles of U.S. foreign policy coming out of World War II was to establish a single superpower world. Um, was one of the reasons for the dropping of the nuclear weapons, to tell the world, a shot across the bow, if you will, that this is going to be a single superpower world. I don't think it was that well thought out. <clears throat> we had single-handedly won World War II. The Russians don't agree with this because without their land armies, we would never have liberated Europe from the Nazis. So the Russians paid a great cost in life and treasure, as they like to say. And uh, they won the ground war, we won the air war, and we won the sea war. That was about it. But we grabbed all the credit for everything, as we are wont to do. Europeans have always noticed we come in very, very late into their European wars. And if they followed the advice of people like me, we'd never have come in to go to, to go a war, at war abroad, as we did in World War I, as we did again in World War II. What we lacked by 45, when the bombs were being dropped or considered, we lacked Franklin Roosevelt. He was the emperor. He knew exactly what he was doing. He'd made a number of agreements with Stalin at Yalta. <clears throat> All Stalin asked for was to be treated as a normal superpower, which is what they were. Roosevelt did not have any nonsense going on in his head about uh, the sanctity of Christianity and the sanctity of capitalism versus communism. I don't think he ever gave such, such topics a thought. All he knew is we had won the war and he was going to decolonialize. Now that is the great Roosevelt message. He told Churchill at Yalta, he said, you know, now we're winning you know, the war in Europe. Pacific War was still going on. But now that we're winning it, you know that you're going to have to give up India. Yes, of course, we always knew that. One day we would really give it up. And he said, no, no, no. You're going to give it up right away. And France is going to give up Indochina. Sumatra and Java are going to be let go free by the Dutch. And he said, I don't care what this does to European powers. I'm ending colonialism because without a clean sweep, the United States is meaningless. I mean, Roosevelt was a great statesman, and he knew a lot about geography, and these other jokers didn't know it. And so it came to pass that uh, Churchill had to give up India, grumbling all the way. At this famous lunch, there were a lot of witnesses there. Churchill apparently turned to him. He thought this man was his friend, or emperors have no friends. And he said, what do you want me to do? Get on my hind legs like your little dog, Fala? And beg? And the emperor said, yes. You don't take on emperors in their own empire. Roosevelt had done what he set out to do. Why did he set out to do what he did? He had lived through World War I, and he'd come to Washington as assistant secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, one of the wooliest-headed presidents we ever had. I mean, he makes Harry Truman look like a, you know, Einstein. He tries out the League of Nations, which he didn't know how to set it up. He antagonized half the Senate and then wondered why they voted against him. Roosevelt had learned his lesson from Woodrow Wilson, so he sets up the United Nations. Wisely, he put Eleanor Roosevelt, who's in many ways a better statesman than he, in charge of just seeing that it, was, it got off to a good start because he, he suspected he was dying and indeed did die. And she nursed it along. And it was a very good thing until American right-wingers got hold of it. 
because they had to complain about foreigners. You know, foreigners are bad people. They don't wash, and they never pay back their debts. Roosevelt was planning his vision of the American empire? Of course he was. Why would the first thing he did was tell Churchill, goodbye, India? You're out of the empire business. There are no empires. He didn't say we're going to be the only one because he was too tactful and too manipulative. Somebody might have said, no, you're not. But uh, he, he set everything up, the post-war world. He makes a deal with Ibn Saad yes. on, a, on, a, on a boat off Great Bitter Lake. Yeah, on his way back from Yalta on a battleship. And Ibn Saud, the king of Saudi Arabia, came aboard and spent the entire day. And here's Roosevelt, a dying man, saying, you know, I'm rather looking forward to coming here after the war. I can help you with many things. <laughs> he was going to help him with the oil, price of oil, I suppose. And uh, Roosevelt was still very vigorous. It's just his flesh gave out. And so he came to die at Warm Springs, Georgia, on a sad day. That deal with Ibn Saud seemed to set the pattern for the next 50, 60 years of Middle East regional policy. Well, also, and a conflict with the Brits, because the Brits were in Iranian oil, AMCO, whatever the company, British Oil Petroleum. And uh, the Brits could think of nothing else, and uh, Roosevelt thought, well, I'll preempt that sooner or later. With the American alliance with the Arabians, and they quite liked each other, the two old kings, and they sat there and divided up that sphere of influence. And then Roosevelt was dead, and Ibn Saud was never a great player, and so that was the end of that. But it, it did set some of the pattern of this use of Wahhabism and the Saudi royal family in the Middle East politics. Well, I don't think Roosevelt knew anything about the Wahhabi uh, Muslims. He didn't do a lot of research, but he had great instincts. He knew where the oil was, and he knew where the power was. So he accommodated the power of the royal family there, and uh, he smiled benignly at the oil wells. In this period after World War II, in this sort of feeling of world supremacy, uh, domestically, we see McCarthyism. Well, McCarthy kind of misread the tarot cards, you know. He thought it was a simple matter of conquest, probably the only thing he basically cared about was Ireland, because he was an Irishman. And he liked the British Empire being kicked in the butt by Americans. So anything that would, you know, do them in or do in, you know, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, who seemed like an Englishman. I think he did a lot of, uh, you know, ethnic one-upmanship. But, um, no, we were, well, first of all, we were taken over by big business, as we always have been, but this time it was pretty severe because the stakes were greater. Somebody said, oh, the kid last night who was interviewing me, Adam something, he said, you know, certainly in the United States it's basically an altruistic uh, country. Look at the Marshall Plan. I said, what's altruistic about seizing control of Western Europe? It seems to be very much part of an imperial plan. Well, he couldn't believe it. He just thought we did it out of goodness of heart. 
Now, he's a very bright guy, writes for the New Yorker and so on. If he's been so misled, and he reads a lot of history, he's just very intelligent. You cannot get through the density of the propaganda with which the American people, through the dreaded media, have been filled and the horrible public educational system we have for the average person. It's just grotesque. This, there's this fundamental belief, religious belief, that America's foreign policy since World War II has been a fight for freedom. Well, it never was. And to believe that we're a democracy, that means you know nothing about the Constitution. The people who made the Constitution hated democracy. Some of them put up with it better than others. Jefferson was pretty good on the subject. The others just loathed it. But certainly there's more democracy in the United States than there was in Hitler's Germany. Well, I suppose that if you're being tortured to death by Mao Zedong, it's much better to be with Paul Revere in front of a fireplace in Concord, New Hampshire. I think you can sort out. No, but 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 there are stages of this process of democracy or lack thereof. Federalist papers are very clear. Whenever one of the founding fathers and one of the people who was inventing the Constitution. They start to get apoplectic at the mention of Athens, the mention of Pericles, the mention of democracy. They go on and on about mobs, and we don't want this, and we don't want that. We're we're an oligarchy of the well-to-do. We were at the very beginning when the Constitution was made, and we are even more so now. But within that context, there is more or less right of free assembly. There is more or less right of free speech. Of course, you have more free speech if you own a television network than if you don't. Well, yes, as you'll find out with the real news. But but there are some constitutional rights here that you wouldn't have seen. They've been eliminated one by one over the last four years. That's my question. When habeas corpus was removed, I think they, they attributed to certain desires of the USA Patriot Act. When they got rid of that, they got rid of Magna Carta. When you get rid of that, you get rid of our liberties. This is the only good thing England ever left us was Magna Carta. Magna Carta guarantees due process of law. You cannot have your life removed. You cannot have your money removed, your freedom removed, except by a trial by jury of your peers, and you can be represented by a legal. That's been eliminated. Sixth Amendment is gone. The speed with which it was done is sort of miraculous because this is a screw-up uh, administration. They can't do anything properly. There are those who keep quoting me because I had said, well, they had had enough warnings about 9-11 to have done something. Well, that's the CIA's warning them. They did nothing. So I have to face this every now and then. Well, you said that Bush was in favor of it. Can you prove that? I said, of course I can't. How would I know? I do know that he is so incompetent. This was a great, successful mission conducted by some crazed uh, religious zealots. There's a lot of taboo subjects in the media and even sometimes in the society. And particularly in the society. Yeah. One of them is trying to make, draw any historical lessons from the rise of fascism in Germany and Italy and say there's anything in common. I'm not joking when I refer to our country as the United States of Amnesia. Although I was corrected recently by Studs Terkel out of Chicago. 
And he said, Gore, it's not the United States of amnesia, it's the United States of Alzheimer's. (laughs) I stand corrected. (laughs) Fascism in Germany wasn't a coup. It was a many-year process. Well, fascism... You start to feel normal. Is, are, are we living, I'm not suggesting we're living in an equivalent period, but there are lessons to be learned about... Well, it is equivalent. I mean, don't be shy of saying that. Uh, the res- response to the Reichstag fire is precisely to, uh, that to 9-11, which was invoked by the, this administration's people. And if we don't fight them over there, we've got to fight them here. Well, this little fool, how are they going to get here? Greyhound bus? I mean... He is so stupid himself that he assumes everybody else is equally stupid. If he had been really elected, I would say everybody else was stupid. But he wasn't. But the party that was really elected went along with most of what he did until very recently. Oh, he didn't do much of anything. They went along applauding it because they were getting huge contracts for Halliburton. No, I'm talking about the leadership of the Democratic Party. Went along with the Patriot Act. Went along with the war in Iraq. Have you ever found them? You know where they live? The leadership of the Democratic Party? <laughs> Flat rocks, you know. They're not visible. There's some obviously good people in the party. I like Dennis Kucinich. I like uh, Senator, uh, you know, Lay. There are some very good people in Congress, and let's hope they start doing some oversight. But I'm not very sanguine. <laughs> the period between 9-11 and Katrina, um, where, where in Katrina some cracks started to appear in, in, in the Bush armor, uh, the, we saw a kind of capitulation by American media and all the opposition political leadership, and you saw a, f- a face of America that we might see more of. After all, you are in opposition to American media, and so am I. And we know how false it is and how corrupt it is and how engagé they are for uh, mischief, making money for the ownership of the country. Uh, there is nothing to be done about them. And no wonder even when the American people might ever again, which I doubt, have an uncorrupted presidential election. 2000 was corrupted. 2004 was corrupted. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get a, to know the people's voice. And the people have no voice because they have no information. Well, that is why you are doing useful work here. That's why I'm chatting with you here. That could be useful to tell them actually what happens around the world. That poor guy running for Congress, uh, everybody jumped on him, particularly anchor him people. He suggested that our foreign policy might have had something to do with 9-11, that we were deeply disliked in the Muslim world for other reasons. It wasn't, uh, well, it's the same presidential, I guess. Do you believe in evolution, said this idiot? I mean, to reveal the leadership of the United States hasn't made it to the 20th century? That our leadership is as ignorant as that? And there, five of them said no, no. Thinking little Lord Jesus was going to vote for them. In this, it's in these moments of crisis, like terrorist attack, that you start to see people's colors. Um, Yellow. Yellow. In Britain as well, I was really taken aback. And after the London bus bombings, uh, Ken Livingston, Red Ken Livingston, was asked, is there any connection between these bombings and UK foreign policy? And he said, there's no connection whatsoever. This is just people that hate our way of life, which is this. That's the new uh, uh, lie that they like to tell. 
Well, that's Bush all the time. They just hate us. Why? Nobody has to ask them why. He doesn't know why. Well, they envious. Our form of government, who envies us? That can of worms that we've got in Washington. And it's been many years in the United States since I have seen a Norwegian coming to get a green card. <laughs> This idea that this, that this you know, de, un, undemocratization or growth of fascism is incremental, what are, the, what are the other signs of it in American society? Well, it's been the uh, monopolizing of great wealth, which tends to happen in basically unjust societies and undemocratic societies. We have plenty of would-be Democrats and would-be liberals, but uh, would-be progressives. But how do you organize them? Democratic Party is a machine to get votes for its people, none of whom should probably be elected to the high offices of state. That's all. The Republican Party is fundamentally crooked and uh, might well be outlawed one of these days. Le Pen, you know, in France, who is an out-and-out fascist, the French have managed in some clever way to contain him. I mean, he's always running for president, and his votes never seem to show up. I don't know how they do it. Well, we've got to do that with uh, the Republican base, the, uh, the religious uh, right. We don't want them running the country. Nobody does, certainly not the founding fathers. And I think we have to ride herd on them and make sure they do not seize the state. Well, they kind of did. and, and, and no, Of course they did. They t- took advantage of 9-11 and so on. How do you assess this danger to democracy of the organization of the hard right alliance with evangelicals? Well, you have to, you know, you have to work out what it is. Uh, They are a little splinter. They can't summon many voters at any given time. They are a minority of a minority of a minority. Uh, They have everybody buffaloed because the great corporations like them and pay money to their candidates for sheriff and senator. And uh, they're playing big-time politics. Yes, indeed. But the average person doesn't like them. You know, any time I want to get applause, and I lecture across America, in state after state after state, when I feel things are getting a little low, and I always say, and another thing, let us tax all the religions. I bring down the goddamn house with that. And any politician would if he had sense enough to do it. The people don't like their tax exemption. I went to a church in Nashville, evangelical church. I was there for, for a four-and-a-half-hour service. And in, in four-and-a-half hours, the words poor or poverty did not cross anyone's lips. No, they might have fallen off the lips. Um, my understanding of Christianity is the fundamental criteria you'll be judged by to enter salvation is your attitude to the poor which doesn't get talked about much. But there was an interesting thing. I, I met uh, a, a man there who's married to a friend who has quite progressive politics, but he's a believer and goes to the church. And he said 20-25% of the church does not support the right-wing politics and didn't vote for Bush. Not um, sure of that. There's an interesting fracture in, in terms of the honest people who believe in the values espoused and what's getting expressed at the political level. Well, remember all that area from which the Gore family comes, 
was a solid Democrat and progressive under Roosevelt for several decades. So they just didn't become Republican because they all wanted to be bankers. They became it because they didn't like black people. And they thought the Democrats were pushing uh, integration too fast. And that's how the great split came about, to the shame of the whole country. How significantly different would a Clinton White House, Obama White House, or an Edwards White House, how much can they do? How much do they want to do differently? It's too broken. The first thing you have to do is get back habeas corpus. You've got to get back the Magna Carta. You've got to get back our legal system. You've got to get back uh, the, the pillars of the Constitution. And they're gone. You don't, re- republics don't restore themselves. There's a, there's a group of ex-Reagan conservatives that are waging a campaign exactly along these lines, saying the Constitution must be reclaimed. In fact, they're making more of it than the leadership of the Democratic Party is. Well, do they have the same Constitution in mind, or do they have something else in mind? One never knows with marginal groups. I think the Reagan people just believed and you make as much money as you can and screw everybody else. This this gang seems to be, they're certainly talking the talk of wanting to go defend habeas corpus and the Constitution. But more my point is, we're hearing very little of this from the Democratic Party. Well, people, you know, there's Dennis Kucinich, there are a lot of people, there's Senator Ley, uh, Senator, uh, Congressman Conyers. A lot of people understand the Constitution and understand the risks of dictatorship because we're right on the edge of it. I tell people, Europeans, I say, you know, what do you think of the regime? And I said, well, what they've done is interesting, symbolic. I said, I was born 80 years ago in a country called the United States of America. And I now live in a homeland. This is an expression we haven't heard since Hitler. Since they don't know anything about language or politics or thought or anything else, they think it's just a wonderful way of explaining the United States defending itself against its numerous inscrutable enemies. They hate us. We don't know why. Well, if we didn't blow up their cities, they might feel more kindly towards us. Two plus two is not possible in the United States of uh, Alzheimer's. What do you see in the next 10, 15 years? bankruptcy for the nation which will put an end to these insane wars we can't afford one I know in Washington I mean the entire uh, Bush gang is longing to reconstitute the army with another million men they can't find a million men and the American people although they can be easily tricked they're not stupid and they're not enlisting those who've been in more or less running the world for the last 50, 60 years or more. How do they deal with a situation where they might not run the world anymore? Well, martial law would be the first step that they would take to get back their powers. It's always a good one, always an easy one. They have all sorts of models, they think, in Abraham Lincoln. But he certainly ruled with dictatorial powers, but the Constitution allowed him to do that, and he was faced with the dissolution of his country. So he, which he cared a lot about. There's nobody in this administration who knows anything about the United States. They don't know the history. 
They certainly do not wish the people well. If you ever talk to Republicans privately about their, this is elected officials, their opinion of the people, it's their contempt is so total. And if you're on their side, you're a soft-hearted liberal or you've been taken in. What do you see as the response coming from the people in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I think bankruptcy, depression. How will people respond? Well, there could be rioting. Certainly when they, well, we saw what happened in the, you know, the late 20s, early 30s. Institutions collapsed, banks collapsed. And uh, Roosevelt's swift actions, followed by the brains of Lord Keynes, changed the whole economic structure of the West, much less the United States. So we were lucky between Keynes and Roosevelt to have had uh, two such extraordinary men who did have our interests at heart, or at least appeared to. economic structure of television makes what I'm going to ask difficult to accomplish, but do you think television journalists have learned anything from this last four years? Well, they've always been lazy, and they're not used to getting to the heart of of problems, of matters. They're not used to investigating anything. Socrates tells us that the unexamined life is not worth living, and that is an absolute truth. Those who want to examine life don't go in for journalism because they're not allowed to. So they've got to be very careful. They have to think about tenure if they're at a university. They've got to think about, you know, the publisher and advertiser. Uh, So it's a difficult road to hoe. And we have no intellectual tradition of any kind in the United States. I even told Arthur Schlesinger, you know, Arthur, one Schlesinger does not make a spring. He was horrified. Um, what do you think is the significance of what we're trying to do? Well, I'm all for it. I wouldn't be sitting here today if I didn't like like the notion. And uh, it's apt to catch on. It's when the news starts to break how two presidential elections, 2000, 2004, were stolen. And the New York Times would not review the book written about it by Congressman Conyers nor Washington Post, nor Wall Street Journal. The great instruments of uh, news were silent. Well, they're saying we don't give a goddamn about the United States. Just stew in your own juice. Leave us alone. We have uh, corporate figures to add up now, and uh, we have certain things we want to put in place. And, uh, we may have a couple of candidates for you dum-dums, but... Uh, You probably won't like them. You know, I've been around the ruling class all my life, and I've been quite aware of their total contempt for the people of the country. And the Republican machine became so good at transmitting its own feelings about the world to the enemy, to the liberals. Once anyone, any of the right wing, hear what I just said, They'll say, oh, the liberals have always hated America. We know that. They, they despise family values because they're only interested in uh, gangbangs and drugs and so forth. This is the way they deal. And whenever you get 
whenever they have a real coward running for president, like Bush himself, and you have a hero like Kerry, he's a coward, didn't you know that? We got five guys who are in Vietnam with him. What they do is whatever is their transgression, whatever is, are their faults, they lie and apply it to the other person. That confuses everything. If I were an average voter in the United States, I wouldn't know who was telling the truth, whether Kerry really had run away and didn't get purple highs, or whether Junior, you know, had actually <laughs> learned how to fly a plane. And television news covers the lies like news. Yes. It has a lock on it. You've been touring the country after your new book. Well, no. Well, no, I was touring it before the last congressional election to raise money for the Democratic Party. Not that I like the Democratic Party, but we have to have the semblance of a second party to get rid of these others. What do you hear from people? Well, I've never heard uh, cries of rage so loud. That's whether I'm in New Mexico or West Virginia. I've, I've covered the whole country right now. Our project's fundamentally motivated out of our own concern for what the future holds, um, especially in terms of what democratic rights we do have and the way the media has played such a destructive role. Um, what do you think is the potential for what we're doing? What, what do you make of the project? Well, the potential is enormous. There's not anyone with an IQ above, you know, lowest room temperature. Uh, who isn't interested in something like this. Everybody is on to the con act of our media, that they are obeying bigger, richer interests and informing the public, which is the last thing that uh, corporate America has ever been interested in doing. So I think, uh, you know, the sky's the limit to the amount of audience you can get. And one of the secrets is, aside from telling the truth, which most people in America hate because they've been brought up on advertising and they think the truth is just something irrelevant, irrelevant, you know. Everybody lies, you know. I love that line. So it's all right to steal the election. Well, that isn't what the world's about. And I think it's really come down to we're going to be blown up one of these days. We have now acquired so many enemies with so much power in the world that they're going to take a couple of cracks at us. I would rather have the real news here telling us, well, just where it was they struck, where it is intelligence says they may strike again, and maybe why they're doing it. We blew up their mosque. We killed their president or whatever it was that set them off. What our fictional news does now, and this is all it is, is fiction, whether it's CNN or CBS or NBC, it's all fiction. People making this stuff, junk know that. The viewers suspect it. But where are they going to turn to? Where are they going to find out? They can't all go out and get a you know subscription to the nation, which would help straighten them out, at least in print. So you, you're going to be the only alternative, and the word will start to spread. Look at the speed with which, uh, you know, just by telling jokes, John Stewart and company uh, got the attention of everybody. And, and now they say, well, 
most of the real news that uh, the people know about, they get from the satirizing of it that Stuart does, and very funny he is, too. In other words, you build a better mouse trap, and the mouse will come to your door. Thank you.